Our scripture reading this evening will be taken from Micah chapter 4. We'll be reading the chapter in its entirety, and you can find that on page 1073 in your pew Bible. We'll be focusing our attention this evening especially upon the section that is contained within verses 1 through 5 of Micah 4. As we continue this series of expounding this prophetical oracles of Micah, we now come to chapter 4. Hear now the reading of the word of God. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and peoples shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken." For all people walk each in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame, I will gather the outcast and those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation. So the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on even forever. And you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, even the former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in your midst? Has your counselor perished? For pangs have seized you like a woman in labor. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in birth pangs, for now you shall go forth from the city, and you shall dwell in the field, and to Babylon you shall go. There you shall be delivered. There the Lord will redeem you from the hands of your enemies. Now also many nations have gathered against you who say, Let her be defiled, and let our eye look upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord, nor do they understand his counsel. For he will gather them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples. I will consecrate their gain to the Lord and their substance to the Lord of the whole earth. Thus far the reading of the word of God, and it is especially to verses 1 through 5, but we might say even more specifically verse 4. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, boys and girls, I think I've told you this, but I grew up right next door to my grandpa and grandma lovers. Uh, just what we called the boulevard, the, a yard separated us, but we could easily see each other's houses uh, as we grew up next to them. And as long as I have my senses, I think in the eye of my mind I will see my grandfather seated underneath a large black walnut tree that was just off the back entryway of his farmhouse. In my mind, I can see the picture even now, perhaps on a summer evening, 
uh, after the work had been completed, as the sun set in the west, uh, he, along with Grandma, would make their way out of the farmhouse and he would find his chair underneath that black walnut tree. He would light his pipe. I'm not encouraging you to do that. But he would sit there and he would rest. And he, I think he would contemplate, but for the most part, rest. It was a beautiful picture. At times we would join him. Perhaps we would interrupt his restful evening, but he never complained, at least not to us. When I read Micah 4, verse 4, I can't help but see the connection. Just an absolute picture of peace. You might even say of tranquility. The labor and the toil of the day had been done. The evening was setting upon uh, the landscape. And just to be at rest. Now if we're honest, oftentimes our life is not that restful. And so we have a whole host of circumstances that confront us as we live life here in this fallen world. You have your circumstances, I have my circumstances. I also remember uh, a, a little handwork saying that my mother had right by the door to exit out of our farmhouse. It said if all of our troubles were hung on the line, you would take yours and I would take mine. All of us have troubles. Now, your troubles may be different than my troubles. But troubles include, of course, the disappointments of life, the heaviness of heart, the friction that impacts relationships or that maybe even breaks relationships, uh, the death of loved ones, uh, all sorts of fears uh, about our daily calling. The work week looms large on a Sunday evening, and all that goes into life confronts us. And so you can look even at a broader scale. Who can turn on the news and be encouraged? You hear of inflation, the rising of the cost of living, uh, the nations as they continue to be unsettled like the waves of the ocean, the invasion of Ukraine, and you see some of the, the pictures and there, there is this remarkable contrast because there you don't see individuals seated underneath uh, their black walnut trees in peace and tranquility. There you see people on the run being exiled from their very homes, homes that far too often have been devastated by bombs and heavy artillery. Uh, you hear of fighting in the streets. Uh, perhaps you see pictures uh, even of farmers with their tractors pulling away Russian tanks. And while perhaps we congratulate the vigilance of the Ukrainian forces, it confronts us with the painful reality of the brokenness of life. But in the midst of such a scene, there is reason for hope. And one of the hopes that I would have as a pastor for us as a congregation is that, that we would have, that we would have a spirit of what I like to term Christian optimism. Christian optimism that, that, that would even be evident to our own young people and our own children. That would be evident in our workplaces. Wouldn't it be remarkable uh, if whether it be at 
uh, Vermeer or whether it be at Pelicorp or whether it be uh, in whatever place of vocation, uh, if the community said, you know, those, those people from Covenant Reformed Church, they, they're optimistic. They have a bright outlook on life. I wonder what it is that gives them such a bright outlook. Let's ask them for the reason for the hope that they have. And if when they asked us, instead of replying that we have an optimism based upon the social evolution of humanism, we were to say, we believe that a day has come and is coming in which the Messiah will establish his kingdom. And that kingdom brings blessings. Blessings that include peace and spiritual tranquility. Well, to the encouragement of such a condition, you might say, we turn our attention to consider this prophetical oracle of Micah 4, verses 1 through 5. We have this theme, the Lord promises blessings to Israel's faithful. And as we unfold that theme tonight, first of all, I want to consider the need for this promise. And then secondly, the contents of this promise, and then thirdly, the use of this promise. So in our text, uh, if we condense it down, the Lord, and you notice it's all capitalized, the covenantal Lord, the Lord God who has made a promise that he would never leave his people, he comes and he promises blessings to the faithful in Israel. The need for this promise can be considered historically and then also in a more contemporary light by way of its continual need. And so the historical need for the reiteration of this promise is in contrast to the dark prophecy. And I don't know about you, but I, from my perspective, of course, not that we apologize for Scripture, but it's been a rather lengthy process through the opening chapters of Micah. And it seems that oracle after oracle were dark and foreboding of God's judgment. And now you have to remember that historically Micah would have traveled around in the covenantal community, especially there in the southern tribes, and and he would have been giving these oracles, dark, dark oracles about the coming judgment of God upon the apostate people of Israel. And now those prophecies were certainly necessary given the reality of sin and of apostasy. There were many people in Israel who were not walking in faith and in repentance. There were many people who had a boast and a covenantal presumption. And the sincerity of their heart was not there. Externally they said, well, we are the people of God. No ill can befall us. And so the Lord comes, and you might say with shock and all, through the prophet Micah says, oh, but woe is coming. Woe is coming to those who are hypocrites in the house of Israel. But not everyone in Israel was a hypocrite. Not everyone was boasting presumptuously. There was the remnant. There were the faithful. And this is always how it is in the external community of God's church. It's always in this life a mixed bag, you might say. Now, we certainly use the judgment of charity, and we take people and their profession at its value. Uh, But there's always the the mixed multitude, according to Jesus' parable, uh, the good fish, and then also the bad fish. And so Micah has had many words in response to the reality of those who are covenantal boasters. But what about the faithful of Israel? What about the sincere people of God? 
And what about the difficulties that they also experience as they walk by faith and as they live by faith? And as they live by faith leading up to the time of the exile and even through the exile? What about those people who, according to Hebrews 11, died in the faith, not having received the promise, but having seen them afar off, being assured of them? What about those people who embrace the promise? Again, according to Hebrews 11, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. What about those people who were seeking a, a heavenly homeland? What about the sincere child of God living in the days of Micah? They needed a word of comfort, a word of encouragement. And so also there is a continual need because this historical need, now obviously we're not living in the days of Micah, uh, but the old proverb is true. The more things change, the more things really stay the same. And the life of the Christian today is not that much different than the life of the child of God in the days of Micah. And as these individuals faced of the difficulties of life, so we also face the difficulties of life. We live in the midst of the reality of immorality within our culture. And we see the increasing immorality, the wickedness, and the social unrest, and the political unrest. You might even say the domestic unrest, the general darkness of living the Christian life in the fallen world. And not only that, but what about the additional toil of life? And when you, when you think of the toil of life, think of the opposition that there is in so many aspects of life as a result of the sin that impacts all of the created realm. I want to be clear, especially for the young people, work is not the curse. God works. We work. Work is good. Work is inherently good. The curse is the opposition that we face in our work, the toil, the sweat of the brow, the thorns and the thistles. And that is the reality that times causes us to cry out, longing for deliverance. And all of creation joins out in that cry. If you listen carefully, you can hear even within the animal realm the cry go out as creation groans for deliverance. And in the midst of that context, Micah comes and he gives a promise. A promise especially to the faithful Christian that may be a grieving spouse. That may be a faithful Christian on the receiving end of a broken relationship. The Christian who is a single parent. The Christian who is sick, who is afflicted, who is brokenhearted, who is troubled in his mind, who is distressed in their spirit. And if that is you this evening, Micah has a word for you. And the word is a promise. And we'll notice the contents of that promise in our second point by looking at the timing, the exaltation, and the peace. The timing of the realization of the promise. One of my professors in seminary, he told me, and it's really not an original thought with, with him, I don't mean that to discredit my professor, but many professors have said this, in the Old Testament, the prophets, what they did was, figuratively speaking, they, they climbed up into the watchtowers of hope and they, they scanned the horizon to see what God was going to do in the future. Now again, and, and perhaps I'm living on borrowed capital with my agricultural analogies, and if they don't work, 
please do uh, instruct me and inform me. Uh, but I can remember climbing to the, the top of the silo and, and looking out, and you got a whole different perspective 60 feet up in the air. You could see much, much, much further than you could at ground level. I want you to think of the prophets by the way of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit climbing up to a higher vantage point. Not that they did this in and of themselves, but the Holy Spirit revealed things to them so that they could see the big picture. They could see broader. They could see further than uh, the faithful Israelite living out the Christian life here on the ground. And sometimes that's what we so desperately need. Someone to give us a higher perspective, a, a further perspective, and then to look and to turn to us and say, this is what I see. I see a future day. I see something in the future that is going to take place. And so you'll notice in verse 1, there is this statement, now it shall come to pass in the latter days. I just want to point out the certainty of what the prophets saw. It shall come to pass. And perhaps one of the most comforting things for the troubled heart of the Christian is that the future is certain in the hands of an almighty God. All sorts of theological truths come to mind when you consider this phrase, now it shall come to pass. The sovereignty of God the knowledge of God, the wisdom of God, the eternal decrees of God, the power of God. Now, you and I don't know what the future holds, but thanks be to God, we know who holds the future. And in contrast to the absolute frightening perspective of the unbeliever who has no idea what tomorrow holds, we can say at the beginning of a new week, it shall come to pass. Well, what will come to pass? Everything that our gracious Heavenly Father has determined will come to pass. But more specifically, it shall come to pass in the latter days. When are these latter days? This is the term that will come up time and time again, and so we do well to, to, to pause here for a moment and, and to consider this phrase somewhat more closely. The latter days is a term that focuses upon the coming of Jesus Christ. That's always the, the focus of the latter days. The latter days are the days in which Jesus Christ comes. Now, when you think of the coming of Jesus Christ, and here also I'm indebted to my professor, and, and he would often tell us the, the prophets from their watchtower of hope, they, they scanned the redemptive horizon, and they often spoke with what is termed prophetic foreshortening, where two events in the future uh, that are very similar, are condensed down and spoken of as one event. And that's the way it is with the latter days and with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we glean the revelation of Scripture, we understand that Jesus Christ has two comings. There is his first coming, the incarnation, as the Holy Spirit word conception within the womb of the Virgin Mary, and as Jesus Christ was born in the flesh, the divine nature being united together with the human nature, and we have discussed this, we have considered this in recent weeks, but we understand that that's the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then there's also the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, when he will visibly, physically, in a glorious manner, return at the consummation and the culmination of human history. 
And now the question could be asked, well, which one is Micah referring to? And the answer is both. Because although they are two distinct comings of the Lord Jesus Christ historically, they are connected together vitally. Because the first coming is the basis for the second coming. And the first coming guarantees the second coming. And the second coming will culminate the work that was accomplished in the first coming. Uh, a little bit of proof from Scripture on this view, that the latter days were initiated or inaugurated with the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. First John 2, verse 18, John writes, Little children, it is the last hour. It is the last hour. And in the Reformed understanding of eschatology, the Reformed understanding of the end times, we refer to the fact that we are living in the last age, the last hour. Now that does not automatically mean that Jesus Christ's return is immediately imminent, but it does mean this, that the re return of Jesus Christ is the next grand event in human history. The return of Jesus Christ will be the next earth-shattering, altering event. We are living in the last hour. You can think also of Hebrews 1, verse 1 and 2. There speaks God, who at various times and in his various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. And so the author to the Hebrews, in writing to the Christian church there in the New Testament era, identifies that they are living in these last days. And so we're, we're using Scripture to interpret Scripture, and we're trying to ask ourselves, okay, when are these latter days? Well, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 sheds light, when Jesus Christ spoke to us. Now, of course, Christ speaks to us through prophets and through apostles, but ultimately he spoke during his earthly ministry. And so it shall come to pass in the latter days is the timing of this promise. And that brings this practical application. Notice even in Micah how Christ-centered everything is. And notice how the decree of human history is also centered upon Jesus Christ. I often think of the summary of a Christian worldview as it is contained in Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17, uh, that everything is of Christ and everything is to Christ. And especially for the faithful Christian living by faith in the midst of all of the difficulties of earthly life. What is the most hopeful thing? To fix your eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days. Something will be realized. Notice what it is that will be realized. That the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above all the hills and people shall flow to it. Uh, now, many of you, you're, you're well-versed uh, in waterworks, you might say. Uh, you, you see the tiling companies. Uh, you see the tile being put into the, the fields and into the ground, and all of us know that apart from some external propelling, water does not flow upwards. But here it does. 
The mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. That's because we're not dealing here with water. We're dealing with human persons. But the, the object of this realization is that through the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ, his kingdom of redemption shall be established. And as that has been established in his work, in his work of humiliation and exaltation, in the fulfillment of the promise when Christ said, if I am lifted up, I will gather all men unto myself. And think of the glorious reality of human history that year after year, decade after decade, century after century, human beings have been drawn to the mountain of the Lord through his sovereign grace. As the word has been preached and proclaimed, according to the eternal decree of God, person after person has experienced the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit and has experienced the exercise of faith and repentance and conversion and has come into the Christian congregation and has joined with uh, this massive flow of humanity. And they have said, we will go up to the house of the Lord to worship our great God. And so, yes, the, the oracles of judgment continue to sound. But as we said recently, those oracles of judgment serve the purposes of grace because sinners are awakened and hearts are renewed as the sound of God's holiness and justice is proclaimed, but also then the work of Christ. You see, this is the center of everything, that this will be established in the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. The whole oracle, but especially verse 2, speaks about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is a powerful reminder, a reminder that we need to hear, that leadership needs to hear, that ministers who stand in pulpits need to hear. What did Christ say upon hearing Peter's confession? I will build my church. You want to know what one of the most discouraging things for a pastor is? For a pastor to begin to buy the lie that he himself will build the church. And that's true of any person in leadership within the church. That's true of any person in the church. It's the most discouraging thing, the most overwhelming thing I would dare say that there are many, many factors, but this has to certainly be one of them for the, 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 the rise, at least statistically, uh, of pastoral burnout. Part of the reason, it's not the only reason, part of the reason pastors burn out because they think that they must build the church. Micah doesn't walk around and say, oh, by my wonderful oracles, I'm going to reform Israel. No, he says, it will come to pass in the latter days that Christ himself will build his church and nations shall flow unto it. 
Now here also we are reminded that we live by faith because we don't always see this. We look around even in our own beloved communities and we would say, well, it would appear that the churches are emptying. It would appear that they are disbanding. It would appear that there is a merging of churches that are half empty anyways. So you take two half empty churches and put them together, maybe on a good day you'll get a full church. That's when we remind ourselves that we we walk by faith, not by sight. And at times, perhaps, we just need to repeat to ourselves, now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains. And there will be peace, a wonderful, wonderful peace. Uh, this verse uh, that is stated there uh, in verse 3 he shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. That, of course, also refers to Jesus Christ. You can think of Psalm 2 as he rules the nations with a rod of iron. But notice that these nations underneath this messianic rule shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Uh, unless it's changed, uh, I was told, or I read at one point, uh, that the United Nations have this verse in a plaque that stands next to one of their buildings. The United Nations, that union of world powers, organized after World War II as the answer for humanity's habit of war. I have to say tonight, as painful as it is, the United Nations will never accomplish world peace. NATO will never accomplish world peace. No earthly alliance of nations will ever bring about world peace. Now you might say, well, you began your sermon saying that you hoped that we as a congregation would have a spirit of Christian optimism that would be even evident within our communities, and now you're telling us there is no hope for world peace? We didn't say that. There is hope for world peace. But not in the nations. There is a sure hope for world peace in the Prince of Peace. This promise is not going to be realized apart from Jesus Christ, but this promise will be realized in and through Jesus Christ. And thanks be to God, certainly we pray for greater expressions of peace. We pray for evildoers to be subdued, and if need be, by force. But our eye of faith always looks to that moment when indeed every means of military armor will completely be eradicated, and that will occur when Jesus Christ comes. And every single human being drops whatever is in their hand, whether it be a tool of war or whether it be a tool of construction, when every eye will see him, the glorious Son of God, as his glory radiates and is manifested across the horizon, and as time gives way to eternity. This describes what then comes in verse 4. Everyone sitting underneath his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. Boys and girls, are you ever afraid? Sometimes I get afraid. Maybe you get afraid. 
Are you afraid of the dark? We have a, we have a little running joke. There's a person in our household who doesn't like to go get the mail or the trash at, at dark. It's dark out there. There's animals out there. Everybody knows what it is like to be afraid. But there's a day coming in which nothing will make the people of God afraid. I ask you, what is your greatest fear? Is it death? Jesus Christ has conquered death. Is it the grave? Jesus Christ has conquered grave. Is it what someone can do to you physically? Do not fear those who can kill the body. Fear him who can kill the body and then cast it into hell. Fear Jesus Christ. And not with a slavish fear, but with a childlike fear. If man is against us, so be it. And I know perhaps this is easier for an older man to say than for a younger person to realize. But at the end of the day, what is there really to be afraid of? If we are on the side of Christ, there's nothing ultimately to be afraid of. And so we can, even now, already, based upon the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, sit underneath our vine and underneath his fig tree, knowing that no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Well, what is the use of this beautiful promise? Uh, then in our third point, uh, to make it practical and to apply it to our everyday lives, this promise has a use. God gives his people promises to motivate them, to encourage them, to comfort them, also to, to prod them on, so to speak. And that's exactly what the Lord God is doing. Uh, so the explanation of the use, the promises of the Lord are given to the people of God to motivate them in the life of the Christian faith. To motivate them in the life of faith uh, and of obedience. Now, it, also in light of this morning, we want to be crystal clear that we do not become children of God because of the way we live. But being children of God, we live the way we live. And if you were to summarize what is our calling, what is our duty, our duty is to walk according to the Word of God. I notice that uh, this is seen also within our text. As it speaks there in the middle of verse 2, He will teach us His ways, and we shall walk in His paths. There is a cause and effect and Christ is, of course, the great prophet. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And you'll notice at the end of verse 5, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and forever. And so the, the gift of this beautiful promise, if it's understood properly, it should not create within us a spirit of passivity. A spirit that just says, well... I'm a covenantal person, and so I can just do whatever I want to do. That's the rash, presumptuous mindset of the hypocrite. But the sincere child of God, realizing the wonder of this promise, then has a desire to walk according to the Word of God, to walk according to the precepts that are revealed within the Word of God, to present the entirety of our person, the entirety of our lives unto the Lord our God as a thanksgiving offering. This 
promise ought to put a certain spiritual spring within our step. And, and going back to the earlier question, or the earlier uh, point of application, those who live around us, those who work with us, if they were to ask the reason for the hope that is in us, would it be because they detect that there is a certain holiness of us? Not, not an external hypocritical holiness, but a genuine piety. A genuine piety that is consistent with those who know the greatness of our God and of His promise. that He is our God and we are His people. But I have to point out, to be faithful to the text, that there is a note of discrimination in the exhortation. Verse 5. I've often said the book of the Bible is a book of contrast. You can think of Psalm 1. It paints that contrast so remarkably stark. The godly are this way. The ungodly are that way. And so also you see the contrast in verse 5. For all people walk each in the name of his God. Everyone is inherently religious. Everyone serves a God. Paul makes this point clear in Romans 1 and Romans 2. The problem is not that people don't have God. The problem is that people are perpetual idol factories. And that by way of sin, we love to fabricate gods after our own image. And we may not hammer them out of wood and stone anymore, but humanity has all sorts of gods. And I've often said it this way too, your theology, and people can deny it, but it's ultimately a reality. Your theology will determine your morality. You and I, we do what we do because we believe what we believe. And you and I live the way we live because we believe what we believe about God. And so Micah surveys the culture and he says, all people walk each in the name of his God. But if that God is not the God of heaven and of earth, if that God is not the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then that walk is a walk in futility and is a walk to eternal futility. Notice the contrast, but we will walk in the name of of the Lord our God forever and ever. There's a certain resolve, a resolve of the heart. And I want to ask you in closing tonight, have you ever said, at least in essence, maybe not the exact words, but have you ever said that sentence? Personally. Have you ever said, I will walk in the name of the Lord my God? Have you ever said that corporately as a congregation? We, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God. Believing His promises. Following His word. And asking that question, I of course anticipate that your internal answer would be yes. We have made our professions of faith. 
and we continue to make our professions of faith. We have said that we believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We are here in the corporate congregation of God's people. But if that question finds the ears of someone who has never said, I will walk according to the name of the Lord our God, I lovingly but also pointedly call you tonight to do so. Because if you walk in the name of your God, it will be absolutely futile. But if you walk in the name of the Lord our God, there is life forevermore. And so imagine again the picture. The day has set, the evening comes upon the individual. And there is tranquility and peace as they sit underneath their fig and underneath their vine at rest, afraid of no one, afraid of nothing, joining themselves together with the multitudes who go up to the house of the Lord, to the mount of the Lord, to worship the Lord God. And I don't know about you, but when you read Micah 4 verse 2, it carries you right into the book of Revelation. Of that innumerable multitude that dwell there in the eternal house of the Lord, praising the Lord Jesus Christ. Saying, Alleluia. Glory and blessing be to the Son of God, now and forevermore. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you. And we do praise you for these promises that you give us. And we ask that even as we hear them, we might join the mighty multitude saying, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. We do desire that you would teach us your ways and also then incline our hearts to walk in your path. Father, we especially look and long for the day in which all swords will be indeed beaten into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks for that day in which nation will no longer lift up sword against nation for that day when no one will learn war anymore. And so, again tonight, our cry is, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We pray this in his name. Amen.